1: Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Robin minter smyers I'm the President of the Board of Directors of the City Club. My role today is to introduce our speaker, but before I do so, I want to take a moment on behalf of our staff and my colleagues on the Board of Directors to acknowledge the controversy generated by our forum today. Since its founding in 1912, the City Club has provided a forum for public engagement here in our community and we've hosted our share of speakers who've been controversial and about whom we've been criticized. That comes with the territory for a forum devoted to freedom of speech. That said, we did not anticipate that our speaker this week would generate the reaction that we have heard. While we have received some favorable feedback, respected community leaders, valued civic partners, and members of the community have raised serious objections. Issues have been raised that question our speaker's academic integrity and historical accuracy. And some characterize his writings and speech as anti-Israel, anti-Semitic, and hate speech. Concerns have been raised that in sponsoring this forum today, the City Club has degraded our platform. We who are charged with the stewardship of the City Club, take all of the feedback that we receive seriously. We pledge to use this as an opportunity to reflect on the role that this organization plays in the community and our own processes for carrying out that purpose. We believe that our work promoting free expression, civil civic discourse, and conversations of consequence requires us to listen to others, including our critics and learn from what we hear. This resolve to listen and learn does not lessen our commitment to our mission. Rather, it lives at its very core. We understand that we are not just a free speech forum. We are this community's free speech forum. We are grateful for this city's commitment to its City Club, and we ask you to continue to provide the feedback, insights, and support that are so critical to enhancing and sustaining our work. Our speaker today is Dr. Ilan Pape. He came to us through the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle East Studies, a collaborative of academics and scholars at Cleveland State University, Case Western Reserve University, and Kent State University, who invited Dr. Pape to speak at their campuses. Dr. Pepe was born in Israel to German-Jewish parents who fled Nazi persecution in the 1930s. His early life involved military service, undergraduate work in Jerusalem, and a PhD in history from Oxford University. The first portion of his professional career involved teaching Middle Eastern history and political science at Haifa University in Israel. In 2007, Dr. Pepe left Israel and took a post at the University of Exeter in England. He's the author of numerous books on Israel and the Middle East. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club, Dr. Ilan Pape.
2: Thank you very much. I want to thank the City Club and the organizations who made this uh, visit uh, to Cleveland, not only to the club, but also to three universities. If they could have, they probably probably would have squeezed another two universities, but luckily there were only three in the 10-mile radius from my my hotel. (laughs) And uh, it's a great pleasure to meet you all. And I would like to begin by one or two biographical notes, although I was very happy with this biographical resume, as it was presented a minute ago, because I saw some other biographical notes about me which were lifted from Wikipedia, which at times is a good source, but quite often is not to be trusted. Uh, The most important part of my biography, I think, is that I was born in Israel in 1954. And as was mentioned, my parents escaped Nazi Germany in the 1930s, and both my mother and my father lost most of their relatives in the Holocaust. And this, for me, is a very formative part of my life. Much of what I do is informed by this family history. Much of what I do, both as a scholar and as an activist, is motivated by this part of my biography. I grew up in Israel and the city of Haifa as quite a normative, a normal Israeli Jewish boy, which included serving in the army and unfortunately also participating in a war in 1973 on the Golan Heights. Both the family history and the experience in the 73 war, I think, were important pivotal moments in my life that led me in the 1980s to begin a career that combined together scholarship with activism. And the main impulse was realization as someone who wanted to be a professional historian, that there are hidden chapters in the history of my country that were either wiped out fabricated, distorted, but in any case were not available for me as a young man that had an impact on the reality in my own lifetime. And I thought that I should do my best to shed light on these hidden chapters. And when I started exposing them, And when slowly the pieces of the puzzle unfolded, what emerged was a picture that made me feel that I cannot be indifferent for what had been done in my country in the past and is being executed in the present. I remembered that both my father and uncle used to tell me that although they were very afraid of the Nazi thugs in Germany in the 1930s, the people they really were angry with were those who could do something and didn't do anything. And I didn't want to be such a person. I had a privileged position as an academic in Israel, and I had a privileged position as a Jewish citizen of Israel. And I thought that privilege is a duty to do all I can for those people that I felt were oppressed, colonized, mistreated for over 70 to 100 years in my own country by my own state. And this is a mission I took upon myself, and not the only one. And I needed the connection between my scholarly research and my activism to work well together. And those of you who are academics know that that is not easy. You want to be objective. You want to be scientific. You want to be accurate. And yet, you know exactly why you are writing what you're writing. You want to help people. You want to fight injustice. And I think academics are as should be as committed as any other human being to fighting injustice. The fact that they see themselves as people who produce knowledge and unbiased knowledge, objective knowledge, scientific knowledge, does not mean that they're not human beings who have moral commitment to what's going on around them in their own society. Ivory towers is not a positive metaphor for the academia. It's a negative metaphor for those of you who think of ivory tower as something Positive. No, ivory tower means that you have academics who criticize everyone but themselves and do not interact with the society around them. And one of the questions that bothered me both as a scholar and as an activist, and is the title of tonight's, uh, this morning's talk, I'm a bit jet legged it's five o'clock in the morning for me. Um, <laughs> One of the uh, topics that really uh, uh, engaged me, and the one I'm going to talk about uh, uh, today, is what I call the idea of Israel. What I meant by the idea of Israel is that there is a conundrum for me as an Israeli Jew, and for many Israelis, I think. How come, given with everything that is happening in the world, there is still a question mark about the legitimacy of the Jewish state. How come, with all the atrocities and the ruthless behavior of both regimes and oppositions in the Arab world and in the Middle East, yet a lot of people around the world feel that the most important example of injustice is that of Palestine? And I wanted to understand it. I wanted to understand the conundrum of a country or a state which, on the face of it, is very strong. It has the strongest military presence in the region, the strongest army in the Middle East, the fourth or the fifth strongest army in the world. According to a lot of sources, it possesses 250 nuclear weapons It is a high-tech nation. It has, according to its own image, a very vibrant multicultural environment. It has the city of Tel Aviv, which is a safe haven for gay culture, among other things. And yet, with all that security and power, its people feel insecure. They are questioned about their legitimacy in the world, and whatever they do to fight it, they meet conscientious people. Some of them used to be great supporters of Israel who tell them, yes, we know about the high-tech nation. Yes, we know about Tel Aviv, but we know about other things as well. And these other things question your achievements. These other things lead us to ask, who are you? What are you doing? And what is your vision for the future? If it's my mother, tell her everything is okay. (laughs) And I think in order to understand this conundrum, you have to go back to history. You have to understand how the idea of Israel was conceived, where was it conceived, and what went wrong, and what led to such a large number of people who are honest, who are conscientious, who are educated, to say to the Israelis, sorry, we cannot support you anymore. We have a problem with who you are and what you are doing, whether we are Jewish, Muslims, Christians, or Buddhists. And in this country, slowly, the number of people who support Israel is decreasing. And you are left with Christian Zionists and Jewish communities being the only pillar on which the support for Israel uh, relies on. (coughs) The idea of Israel is the idea that the Jews of the world have the right to create in the land of Palestine, their homeland, and to gather all the Jews around the world to be part of a new Jewish nation state where the Jewish right for self-determination would be exercised, where Jews would feel safe from anti-Semitism and persecution, and where they could uh, exercise their culture, tradition, and identity. What is interesting about this idea that originally it was not a Jewish idea. It's a Christian evangelical idea. Back in the 17th century, the idea of Israel was conceived in Europe, where evangelical priests and thinkers had the notion that you can have a kind of a double bill if you think of sending the Jews Palestine. It's a double bill because on the one hand you can get rid of the Jews. These were anti-Semitic evangelical Christians. They wanted to get rid of the Jews of Europe. So one part of the bill is you send them to Palestine. The other one was theological. If the Jews return to Palestine, this may precipitate the second coming of the Messiah and the resurrection of the dead and the conversion of the Jews to Christianity, or their shish kebabing in hell if they refuse. <laughs> Benjamin Netanyahu should be told about it, because his greatest friends in this country are Christian Zionists who have this image of barbecuing Jews in, in hell if they will not convert to Christianity on doomsday. This idea became a far more serious project when Jewish thinkers and activists in Central and East Europe adopted it in the late 19th century. Because they adopted the idea of the return to Palestine not because of Christian evangelical views and not because they wanted the Jews to leave Europe. Actually, most of the Jews wanted very much to stay in Europe, but the Europeans did not allow them to stay in Europe. So the idea was born out of two impulses, the wish to be safe, and it was not safe to be a Jew in late 19th century Central and Eastern Europe. And they were looking for a safe haven. And the wish to redefine Judaism as a national movement. Everyone, everyone in Europe in the late 19th century were redefining themselves. And nationalism was the most attractive way of redefining yourself as a modern person. And the Jews had a lot of objective features in their faith and religion that lended themselves to a redefinition of Judaism, not just as a religion, but also as a national identity. So the idea of Israel became a Jewish idea, not just a Christian idea. And Jewish activists began to work for the idea of the return of the Jews to Palestine, as a project of salvation, but also as a project of redemption. The problem was with the project of redemption, not with the idea that the Jewish thinkers who sought themselves as Zionists believed that they were the descendants of the Jews who were expelled by the Romans 2,000 years before. That was not the issue. Whether they were right or not is not very important. But they felt that they were the descendants of the Jews who lived during what uh, uh, the Jews believed was the, s- the second temple, and that that temple was destroyed by the Romans at the time of Christ, and that they were expelled, and they were actually were looking to coming back home after 2,000 years of exile. What the problem with the redemption was not the validity of this claim. The problem with the redemption was that someone else was living in Palestine. The Palestinians. So what do you do if you want to return to a safe place, if you want to redefine yourself as a modern nation, if you want to redeem what you think is your ancient homeland and someone else's lives in your homeland? Well, you know what people did here when they found someone else living. You genocided the natives of America, as did the Australians. As did the people of New Zealand, as did, to a certain extent, the people who came from Europe to certain parts of Africa. We call that movement of Europeans who flee Europe because they are persecuted and are are looking for a safe new haven outside of Europe, we call that movement settler colonialism. People want to replace the indigenous population so that they can build themselves a safe haven, a nation state, instead of the people who lived there, sometimes for centuries, sometimes for millennia. So the problem with the idea of Israel began when the wish to find for the Jews a safe haven and to allow them to redeem an ancient homeland was encountered with the reality on the ground that someone else was already living there. And like so many other settler colonial movements, the idea of the new state could not include the indigenous native population. The early Zionist painters drew beautiful pictures of Palestine in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. But if you look closely at these paintings, And you know the landscape. You can see that the villages do not appear on the hills, that the Arab neighborhoods do not appear in the cities, that the Palestinians are absent from the pictures and from the early 20th century from the photographs. And they also don't appear in the poems. And they don't appear in the fiction. And they don't appear in the early films. And that was ominous. But the Palestinians did not understand it. That the fact that these new settlers who came to Palestine did not include them when they either described the country, when they photographed the country, when they drew the country, that was ominous. Because if someone doesn't write about you, if someone doesn't include you in the painting, there is a likelihood that when they would have the power they would also take you out of the country. And the main problem with the idea of Israel later on was that part of the idea of creating a Jewish nation state was a wish to have a democratic state, because these were European Jews who really subscribed to what was good in Europe, whether it was liberalism, socialism, democracy, human rights, or civil rights, And they understood from very early on that if you want to have a Jewish democracy, you need to deal with a demography. How can you have the first election in a newly founded Jewish state if the Jews are not the majority? What would happen? Would the Palestinians vote for the idea of a Jewish nation homeland? Probably not. And from the 1930s onwards, the idea of Israel was based on either a wish or an active plan to get rid of the Palestinians. And the historical opportunity arrived in 1947-1948 when the British who ruled Palestine for 30 years decided they had enough of the place, evicted Palestine, referred the question of Palestine to the United Nations and allowed the Zionist movement to decide by itself how to sustain the idea of Israel with this conundrum. the wish to build a Jewish democracy on the one hand, and a demographic reality where the Jews are a minority. In 1948, the Jews were one third of the population of Palestine. And most of them came just three years earlier. This is why the Palestinians did not accept the United Nations idea that Palestine should be divided between the settlers, who should have more than half of the country, and the natives. No national liberation movement at that time agreed to give half of the country to a movement that they deemed as a settler movement or as a colonialist movement. So this was not a solution, and the result was the neighboring Arab states who were pushed to act in Palestine because the Zionist movement began already in the last days of the mandate to expel the Palestinians from Palestine. Arab states who didn't want to do much about Palestine were pushed by their own public opinion to send contingents into Palestine on the day that the British left Palestine, on the 15th of May, 1948, the day of the creation of the State of Israel. But when they came, they came too late. Half of the Palestinians that became refugees were already in refugee camps when the first Arab soldier entered Palestine on the 15th of May, 1948. In my hometown, Haifa, out of 75,000 Palestinians, only 3,000 were left on the 21st of April, 1948. Similar fate awaited the people of Jaffa, Akka, Beisan, 11 towns in Palestine were depopulated. 500 villages out of 1,000 were destroyed and wiped out. And on the ruins, Israel planted forests with European pine trees, or built Jewish settlements, sometimes carrying the same name as the Arab village name, in order to claim that this is not an occupation, but a redemption. So Safuria became Tzipori. Lubia became Lavi. Ma'an became Ma'an. This tragedy, this catastrophe, this act of ethnic cleansing of the indigenous native people of Palestine was watched closely by the world. The New York Times had correspondents who reported quite accurately what happened on the ground. The Red Cross had emissaries that told the headquarters in Geneva of how Palestinian men, women, and children are being deported from their homeland and from their places where they lived for 800 years. And yet the world was quite passive for various reasons. First of all, tragedies of that kind occurred three years before all over the world at the time of the Second World War. A similar tragedy occurred also in India uh, uh, when the British left it in the summer of 1947. And moreover, the international community felt it could not condemn a movement, a political movement that claimed to represent the Jewish victims of the Holocaust by perpetrating crimes against the indigenous population. It was too sensitive. So the Palestinians were pushed out of their country, lost their homes, lost their lands, lost their properties, and were not allowed to return while the world was watching and thinking, it will somehow resolve itself. Somehow this problem would be forgotten, the problem that Europe was responsible more than anyone else for the creation, first by not not allowing the Jews to stay in Europe, and secondly, by supporting the colonization of Palestine. The idea of Israel remained quite steadfast and unquestioned until the 1980s. Of course, Palestinian historians, Palestinian activists, Palestinian uh, poets and writers were trying to say to the world, look, we are victims of a crime. We are fighting a just war of liberation. But they were, as you know, branded as terrorists, as people who are primitive, as people who have no right to do what they were doing and were condemned. But something happened in the 1980s and the 1990s, which I write in my book, The Idea of Israel. Quite a few Israeli historians, poets, playwrights went through the same journey as I did. They started looking at the past through more critical eyes. And they discovered these hidden, chapters that made them feel obliged, as I felt obliged, to do something for the Palestinian cause as Israeli Jewish citizens. And in the 1990s, it was quite exciting to be in Israel, when all these young Israeli men and women, Jewish Israeli men and women, were learning or relearning the history of their country, understanding for the first time the Palestinian perspective and wanting, as I wanted, to do everything they can do to rectify this historical injustice. But for the rest of the Israeli Jewish society, this was too much. And in 2000 came the reaction, which I call in the book the Neo-Zionist reaction. This was an attempt from above to silence this internal criticism. This was a way of looking at this criticism as an act of treason. I cannot count or remember the numbers uh, of times that I was called in my own university a traitor just because I taught the events of 1948 as an act of ethnic cleansing, just because I was fighting for civil and human rights for the Palestinians, wherever they they were, and just because I said that the right of return of the Palestinian refugees is a sacred right on which I'm willing to fight for all my life. So it became an act of treason to tell the truth about the history of Palestine. And this is why, and with this I will conclude, there is a very big clock here that does not allow you to deviate. (laughs) And there is the fierce eyes of Dan here that do not allow you to go beyond the time allocated to you. This is why, since 2005, in this country, something quite amazing is happening. And this thing is called BIG. I don't know if you know what BIG is. BIG is brand, the Brand Israeli Group. The Brand Israeli Group. In 2005, Benjamin Netanyahu allocated millions of dollars to try and rebrand Israel as a positive country because of all the criticism that came out of the solidarity with the Palestinian people and their struggle. And the first stage of BIG was to talk about the achievements of Israel and to avoid the moral debate about Israel's behavior. And this didn't work. People wanted to talk about the moral behavior, especially young people who have seen what's going on in the West Bank, in the Gaza Strip, in the Galilee, in the Nakab, in the refugee camps. So in 2010, big move to another strategy. And this was to blame anyone who even slightly criticized Israel as an anti-Semite. They called it the new anti-Semitism. This is a fabrication of reality. The vast majority of the most critical voices against Israel in this country are Jews. So definitely, they cannot be anti-Semitic. They may be self-hating Jews as I am, I went to the doctor, and he told me, and I know that many Palestinian doctors here are friends of mine, and they also tried to find a medicine, but they couldn't, for a self-hating person. So I'm still suffering from the disease. (laughs) And for some reason, people in Israel think that it will work. This will not work until we restitute the Palestinian rights until we give them back their human and civil rights and allow them to conduct normal life everywhere in historical Palestine and coming back to the land of Palestine, there will be no peace, no reconciliation, and unfortunately, the conflict would rage on. Thank you very much.
1: Today, today we are featuring a forum with Dr. Ilan Pape, Professor of History and Director of the European Center for Palestinian Studies at the University of Exeter. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, city club members, guest students, or those of you joining us via our radio broadcast or live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will try to work it into the program. Holding the microphones today are Content Coordinator, Bliss Davis, and Director of Programming, Stephanie Jansky. May we have the first question, please.
3: Oh, Doctor, so many questions, and I'm only allowed one. (laughs) So I, uh, let's try this one. Your solution to the present situation, trying to go forward rather than back is a one-state solution which I take it would include everything from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean in one state. How do you propose to give the Jewish people now resident in that area any sense of peace and security under a Arab regime which back in 48, not only attacked Israel, but also denuded the Jewish residents of Cairo, Damascus, Baghdad and Tehran.
2: Thank you. I was born in Israel and I lived uh, in Haifa and lived most of my life in an Arab Jewish reality. My friends were not Jews from Brooklyn, but Palestinians from Nazareth. Living with them for more than 60 years now, I have no doubt that I want to share the land with them. So I don't share your fears. My f- feeling is that when we, as Palestinians and Jews who were born there, who live there, we have the right, as you have in the United States, to live in a democratic state. If people, and there are Palestinians as well, who would like to make sure that also their national collective identity, is respected in the future political solution. We can definitely talk about a bi state. We can talk about federated state. There are many models which will allow people both to, res- to have respect for their individual rights and for their collective rights. I'm afraid, sir, that you've been fed with information about the Arabs who live in Israel and Palestine, which has very little to do with the way they live with their aspiration and their hopes for the future.
4: Thank you very much, and also thank you to the City Club for having you here and standing up against many of the baseless, shameful accusations that have been hurled at you. My question is, there's a tension with the new Israeli historians and the research you did and I'd like you to explain it to the audience that doesn't have a good grounding in Israeli politics or culture on the one hand the information that you use and that the historians use in the 1980s and 1990s is declassified records from the Israeli state and as you show in your scholarship these actions that the Israeli state undertook are authoritarian reactions and also humanitarian violations there's a tension though that's information that you got from that very state so can you explain that tension yeah. between the sources of the information and the, the realization of, of the history thank you yes
2: I think that one has to understand that <coughs> Israel is an, in uh, the Jewish society in Israel is living within an indoctrination but this is not the kind of indoctrination we encounter in tyrannies in dictatorship this is a kind of a self assumed censorship that people have. And I think that when Israel decided to follow the British regulation of declassification of documents, they really believed that most of the historians, if not all of them, would use the documentation to sustain the Zionist narrative and not to challenge it. I think they were quite surprised that some of us who were called the new historians came out of the archives challenging the Zionist narrative. But in fact, it's very interesting, Uh, some of the documents I've used are now closed to the public, because they realize that they cannot control the way people would digest the information from the past. In fact, when we talk about 1948, only 2% of the documents are open about what happened in that fateful year. So I think, yes, Israel is navigating as much as it can between the wish to be a democracy, but doesn't know exactly what to do when a very good product of the Israeli democracy says, in the name of the freedom of speech and research, I challenge most most of what you you have done in the past and you are doing in the present, and I really want you to change. So suddenly, democracy becomes a kind of uh, a double-edged idea, and that's why I'm afraid so many Israelis now do not like the idea of democracy anymore, as the shift to the right in Israeli politics has been showing us in the last 18 years. Uh, thank you very much for for coming and
0: sharing with us today. I I appreciate your your hope and your belief that there are a lot of Palestinians and a lot of Jews in Israel who do want to peacefully coexist. However, I find it realistic to think that there are also an awful lot of Palestinians and an awful lot of Jews who still retain a great deal of hatred for one another mm-hmm. because of what has happened to their own families Absolutely. where they've been killed Israeli soldiers have killed Palestinians Palestinians have killed as suicide bombers those feelings are real they're not going to go away overnight how do you overcome that long-standing
2: hatred that exists I am here in Ohio in America, you fought each other in a bloody civil war. Nobody came after the civil war and said, because of the civil war, you have no chance of living together. Believe me, whatever Palestinians did to Israelis and Israelis did to Palestinians, it does not compare at all what you guys did to each other in the 19th century. <laughs> so... And I, I live there. I live there. My children live there. My grandchildren, hopefully, do you hear me, guys? I want grandchildren. (laughs) My grandchildren would live there. Can I tell them there is no hope? Now, my children grew in not a very typical Israeli home, as you can imagine. A lot of Palestinian friends come to visit us in this segregated society. They know a bit of Arabic. They find the notion that they cannot live together with these people in one state, absurd. They find the notion of segregation abnormal, not the notion of living together. And if you live in this country, you should support us and tell us that we have the right as Palestinians, as Jews, to live as equal citizens between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean as much as you have in Ohio. Thank you.
1: I'd like to thank you as well for your presence with us today and for your fundamental uh, position in support of human dignity and respect for for human rights. Um, There's a lot of issues on internal Israeli tensions issues on the Palestinian side, how they've approached this. And then there's a third actor, which is the international community. And you've spoken a bit about its role at the onset in 48. And I'm wondering today, I mean, this is the most legislated conflict there is in the world with all of these UN Security Council resolutions, et cetera. And at this point, moving forward as well, how helpful is the role of the international community? What's your assessment of it? And what are your thoughts on it? Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. I, I think the imbalance on the ground is such that we will not be able to convince the Israelis who have privileges to allow the Palestinians to have equal rights, which have, they have been robbed of in the last 100 years. And I think that the international community can play a very constructive role in offering a way of doing it without the bloodshed, without war, and without violence. I myself support, and I know it's very difficult uh, for people to hear it, especially among my friends in Israel, and it was very difficult for me to adopt this position. But I really feel that there's no other way but putting strong external pressure on Israel through the boycott and divestment and sanction movement. It was very difficult for me to, to reach that that decision. But I was uh, very much involved in what was called the peace process, from above and from below. And I came to the conclusion that very much as was the case with the white community in apartheid South Africa, it's very unnatural to ask people to give up their privileges. And they will do everything possible to maintain them. And sometimes they have to be pressured from the outside, because if the pressure from the outside would not work, unfortunately, a more disastrous scenario would cause them to realize that the reality as it is cannot go on. Thank you. I don't know what
0: to make of your speech. And the reason is because you, you finished the speech with that you were accused of treason in Haifa simply for telling the truth. And yet you started this speech. And I, I hope I got a bit pretty close on the quote. But you said you want to be accurate. You want to be objective. And yet, what, what's and yet? The City Club does not believe in free speech. And yet, there's either truth or not truth. In in fact, you have said, and I'll quote you, uh, that your goal is to quote, convince as many people as we can that our interpretation of the facts is the correct one, and we can do it because of ideological reasons, not because we are truth seekers. And so everything that you've said here today Why should we take it as truth when you've made it very clear that you will, that the ends justify the means?
2: Okay, thank you. Well, for me, truth is a complex idea. You, you and I would have probably very different reports of what happened here. You would say a self-hating Jew came to the city club and preached against Israel. A friend of mine, I didn't, I didn't, no, no, my dear friend, I didn't interrupt you. This is not Israel here. I'm entitled to finish my sentence. (laughs) A friend of mine would say a human rights activist came and told about the plight of the Palestinians and galvanized solidarity. Who tells the truth in this case? In other words, what I said is that when I have my own truth and I believe in that truth, I believe that the others are lying and are fabricating. And my scholarship is there to expose the reasons for the way that they tell the truth, which is exactly the opposite that I do. So people, of course, do not believe me because they believe you that I'm not a truth seeker or I would say that I'm a truth seeker. People believe you. If the evidence that you provide, the arguments that you make, sound reliable and viable, that's what matters. Don't attack the messengers if you don't like the message. Please, argue with me about the message, not about me. It's not about me. Do you agree that Palestinians were expelled from Palestine? Do you agree that Israel systematically abuses Palestinian rights on the ground? Do you agree that as Jewish persons, We should do all we can to grant the Palestinian equal rights. That's the issue. If you want, we can have a whole meeting of the philosophy of truth. But it's very plain and not complex. There is a criminal reality unfolding on the ground, which I devote my life to challenge. This is why I came to the City Club, not to talk about truth, not to talk about objectivity, but to ask you all, help us, to end the colonization, the oppression, and the brutal treatment of the Palestinians that has been going on for too long, and you have the power to put an end to it.
4: Hi, Elon. Um, as a, as a fellow Jewish individual who lost family in the Holocaust, I'm really honored to have you here. And I thank the City Club, because I know what they went through. But I'm honored to have you here and and being part of the group that brought you here, um, because you are a truth teller. And I I wanna explore just just a little bit of your belief in the one state solution, because that's where I've come down as well. The mother of all Zionist lies is that Israel was a land without people for a people without land. And I call that the mother of all Zionist lies because it's the lie from which all of the rest spring. Another big Zionist lie, I'm getting there. Another big Zionist lie was what pre-Nakba Palestine was like. And that's a very important piece of the politics and the political situation of what's being discussed now. So I would like you to address what pre-Nakba
2: Palestine was really like. Well, that's, that's a book. It's not <laughs> <laughs> You know, there was, there was a Zionist um, orator, Beryl Katznelson, who used to give these very long speeches and uh, he also felt at the moment that he was speaking for too long. So about five hours into the speech, like Castro, <laughs> he would go to the uh, audience and say, does anyone has a watch? And people would shout, comrade, what you need is a calendar, not a watch. <laughs> um, so I, I'm saying this because really re- describing pre-Nakba Palestine, which I did in my book, A History of Modern Palestine, and also in the biography I wrote about the Husseini family, you're right, is absolutely important. It was a thriving place. It had an urban center. It had a cultural elite. 70% of the people lived in the countryside, pastoral life. Of course, it was the 19th century. There were a lot of injustices which went along with being under the Ottomans in 19th century Middle East. But there was also the beginning of the process of modernization of national identity. There's a beautiful book by a Palestinian sociologist called Salim Tamari, called The Mountain and the Sea, in which he tries to project into the future what would have happened in Palestine uh, if it would not have been colonized. But I don't even take that point of view. I think that a destroyed Palestinian village is the heritage of the Jews in Israel, and the Palestinians in Israel. And if we can reconstruct a destroyed village, it's for the benefit of the Jews as much as it is for the benefit of the Palestinians. This would heal a wound, and you cannot move forward if you don't rectify the injustice of the past. So I think learning about pre-Palestine Nakba, re-br- bringing back to life things that were destroyed and can be reconstructed is really the most human basis for joint life in the future. Thank you.
3: Um, I want to just bring up uh, an an issue and ask you your opinion on it. Uh, The state of Israel has recently passed a new law. Uh, They call it the Jewish state law Um, and we've been told here in the United States that the state of Israel is a democracy and We've been pointed to the fact that uh, um, Palestinian Arabs are in the Knesset and, uh, and, and other things of this nature. Um, can you please address what the new Jewish state
2: law mm-hmm. does to the idea of a democracy? Yeah, definitely. Uh, first of all, it's called the Israeli nationality law, not the Jewish state law. Uh, it's a very important law because, first of all, it's a foundational uh, or constitutional law, as we say in Israel. Uh, we don't have a constitution in Israel, but we have constitutional laws, which are not easy to change. Uh, that law is interesting in the sense, uh, from the perspective of the question that you ask, is interesting because it makes a distinction between two concepts. One is Medinat Israel, the state of Israel, and one one is Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. The state of Israel, presumably, in the law means Israel uh, before sixty-seven. I assume, or Israel with Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. You you don't know. There's no map in the land. But within what is deemed the state of Israel, it says very clearly only one group has the right for self-determination, the Jewish people. And it says something else. There are people in the state who do not have the right for self-determination, but they have a special language, or they have a language with a special status, Arabic. And I think that's very worrying. I mean, Arabic used to be at least official, the second official language in Israel. Now it has a special status. I'm always worried when states grant you a special status. It sounds special, but it usually means exactly the opposite. And uh, you could see the test for me that this is wrong was the reaction of the Druze community in Israel. The Druze community in Israel, who are Palestinians, felt that they are much better treated because they uh, uh, serve in the Israeli army. So that ser- they thought that serving in the army would grant them equal rights as those of the Jews. But suddenly they were demoted to people who speak Arabic, that Arabic is their mother tongue. And it doesn't matter whether you serve in the army or not, you have a special status, which is very bad. The second idea, the Eretz Israel idea, the land of Israel, is, is defined in the law as the space in which the present Israeli government and successive Israeli governments would encourage settlements, new settlements, as they call it in Hebrew, which means that the state of Israel would expand according to a new map of colonization of the West Bank. Does it include Area C, which is 60% of the West Bank? Does it include the whole of the West Bank, as your ambassador in uh, the new embassy in Jerusalem likes to? To, to tell us we have no idea. But it means that a lot of Palestinians are going to be incorporated in the new and large Israel within this special status uh, uh, idea, which in all due respect, I think, is another variety of an apartheid state. But to say to the credit of quite a few Israelis, they understand it. And there's still a lot of opposition, although I don't think the opposition is strong enough. And although the law would be taken to the Supreme Court, I have a feeling that the Supreme Court is going to approve the law. And Israel would, will have a constitutional law that is worth comparing to the apartheid law of 1948 in South Africa. Thank you.
1: Today at the City Club, our forum featured Dr. Ilan Pape, Professor of History and Director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter. Community partners for today's forum include Cleveland Peace Action, the Department of History at Case Western Reserve University, the Interfaith Peace Builders Ohio, Jewish Voice for Peace Cleveland, the Middle East Studies Program at Cleveland State University, and the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies. Our hospitality partner is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We thank you for for your support. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by friends of Irene Farah and John Carroll University. We also welcome students from Archbishop Hoban High School. Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Please be sure to check our website, cityclub.org, for upcoming forums on Israel and the Middle East. I can assure you there will be more. Thank you, Dr. Pape. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. This forum is now adjourned.
3: For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.